Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slangin' Bearcat Basketball Podcast. I'm Coomer and it's just me today. I'm going to do a quick short introduction for a conversation that Hummer and I recorded a little over a month ago with Kevin Wallace of The Post Cincy. If you're not following him yet and you're a big fan of FCC, I'd recommend doing that. He's incredibly knowledgeable on the FC Cincinnati Club. He, he provides great coverage at his website, thepostcincy.com. But for this conversation, we actually had him on to talk about all of the changes that we've been hearing about or potential changes we've been hearing about with respect to the NCAA, paying players, the G League aggressively going after top high school talent. And then we start throwing around some crazy ideas about what, what it would look like if certain college programs went professional, if they really doubled down on, on paying players and trying to keep talent. Look, we're not talking about it in a way of it being realistic, but we wanted to have a fun conversation about what would it look like if the NCAA approached things completely differently while also getting into the ramifications of name, image, and likeness, allowing players to capitalize off of themselves and make some coin while in college. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Bonus episode this week, Kevin Wallace. We are now joined by Kevin Wallace, editor-in-chief of thepostcincy.com and contributor at Knifey Lion Radio. And for those reasons, we're glad you're joining us to talk about NCAA basketball, a little bit of professional basketball, and we'll see where else this takes us. But Kevin, thank you for joining the Cincy Slang and Bearcat Basketball Podcast. Yeah, yeah. I'll say long time, first time. So I'm, I'm just glad you guys finally found a way to get me on here. I'm happy about it. We're glad to have you, Kevin. I know your expertise and your passion really lies with, with soccer and especially the FCC team that's currently on hiatus as well. But I know you, and I know you've got lots of opinions on, on the recent developments across the basketball landscape and really the college landscape at, as, at large. So to kick things off, let's start at the fact that the G League has poached a few of the top high school players uh, from this 2020 class. Jalen Green, um, Isaiah Todd, and uh, you know the, the recruit from UCLA. They're obviously making an effort to lure some of the top high school basketball prospects into their league, and there's been a lot of speculation as to what this will mean long-term, or maybe even short-term, for NCAA basketball. Is it the death? of NCAA basketball as we know it? I think the answer is yes, if the NCAA is unwilling to make some pretty dramatic moves here. Um, at the end of the day, like if a kid is good at a sport and somebody is willing to pay them for it, like that's what's going to happen. And honestly, that's what should happen. Go get paid for your labor. Like that's, that's what we're all here for. So, the G League finally recognizing that for, you know, in the grand scope of things, a little amount of money, they can poach some big name talent out of high school. I mean, this was a no brainer from the start. And given how different the college basketball game is to the pro game, um, you can start cultivating NBA talent sooner in a team system in an ideal world where these kids grow up, you know, using your coaches philosophy that just that just makes so much sense on paper that you have to kind of look at the NCAA model and go okay so what do you actually offer here for these kids 
Well, I think first off, the interesting thing about college basketball and college uh, in the NBA is the fact that they've always operated essentially as competitors. Their seasons essentially run concurrently. You have nights of the week where games are, are national te- nationally televised games are aired for both college basketball and the NBA. And so you have this really weird circumstance where the feeder system for the NBA is also competing against the NBA and in a lot of ways doing, doing a lot of damage to the perception of that game. Because for some odd reason, if you're a college basketball fan, a lot of those folks don't like the NBA. There doesn't seem to be these, you know, myself, I'm a huge NBA fan. I love college basketball. That's less common for some reason. Um, and, but there's been some really interesting writing on this topic. There are a lot of tools that the NCAA has at their disposal to still make it a very intriguing uh, option for fans to watch, but also for players to take on. So first off, I think one the, the big ace in there, or the biggest change the NCAA is talking about right now is the name, image, and likeness laws, or even rule changes that they're potentially bringing to the table. You know, they have a working group that is bringing this and suggesting that, hey, we should allow players to make, make money off of their name through advertisements uh, or whatever else they can get their hands on outside of a formal payment system. Do you see this as doing enough to counter what the G League might be doing? Um, I think it's certainly a start. I think it helps kids like Zion Williams, who came into college essentially already internet famous. Like the guy had like a million and a half Instagram followers before he even played the first game for Duke, right? So like he can sell sponsorships on his Instagram feed and probably get more famous at Duke faster than he could, let's say he's a G League guy for one year, a bench guy his first year in the NBA and then a regular in the NBA, right? Like he's probably too good of a talent to actually have that path, but you can imagine somebody following a similar path that way. You know, Duke gives you a chance to get onto a, you know, a national stage a lot faster. So for a guy of his profile, it probably evens the odds, but somebody who's maybe a little more on the fence or maybe not as famous. I mean, honestly, just somebody from a small hometown, maybe that, you know, hey, you can you can benefit from your likeness. Well, you got to play in college for two years before you become the fan favorite, and then the local dealership wants to put you in the the radio ad before you actually get to benefit off of that. Versus, you can go take a ready, steady paycheck in Fort Wayne right now. So, I think for the highest caliber players, that will actually keep it even. I think just a half step below the G League's regular income is probably more profitable in the immediate term. And given the background of some of these players, maybe that's more appealing right away. I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs) Well, the thing with the G League is it's very narrow in its scope. So I think what people aren't realizing is they're basically talking about one team. It's a select team of, let's say, 10 to 12 players that they're bringing in to kind of give them the skills. They know these guys are intending to be professional basketball players, come into this program and we're going to give you the skills necessary to be a professional on the court, give you the development you need to make it to the next level, ideally, but also that off-the-court training. You know, one of the coaches involved is Sam Mitchell. I read some quotes he had about it. So much focus is going on, you know, personal development and making you a professional. And look, that's probably not that ideal for, I would say, a broad amount of 18-year-olds, right? Right, right. There's a lot less fun involved with the G League. A, you're not going to be as famous in the G League. Right. Um, you're, you're probably, 
honestly, a lot of agents are steering players away so far from actually playing games in the G League. So it's a year off, you get some coin, and then eventually you may go into the draft and get drafted. But it's, it's certainly not a guarantee. And I think in terms of just the intangible of fun, it's certainly not as fun for the players. And I think yeah. it's important to note that, real quick, Hummer, that G League move, it really does seem more of a counter to what the Australian Basketball League was doing, that National Basketball League. They poached uh, LaMelo Ball. They pushed RJ Hampton. They really were angling themselves to basically be this one-year stopping point for talented American high school basketball players. Here, we're going to give you the six-figure salary. Come play with us. And it really does – that's probably a better option still than the G League because it's a higher level of basketball. It's actually professional play. You're working with high-level coaches and high-level players who – a lot of players who used to play in the NBA, whereas in the G League, it's, it's really not a fully developed concept at this point. Well, I think you're I think you're missing one of the the other points too that the G League I don't think was as attractive to young college players, you know, in past years simply because going against, you know, being an 18-year-old kid and going against them, the G League isn't just a bunch of young players necessarily. There's NBA veterans in there. There's guys who just aren't good enough to cut it on a true NBA roster, but they're definitely better than anybody that's probably currently playing in college basketball right now. And by going up against them night in and night out, they could actually lose potentially their draft status. So the biggest change, not only is it the income that they, these kids could, could make, but it's actually the structure with the G League where they're actually partnering them with veteran players and doing kind of like a pre-G League schedule. So they're actually playing games, getting mentored by these veterans. And that was, I think, the biggest change is saying, okay, well, not only can I make some coin, now I can also go and, and play these games that don't really count, I guess you could say. They're more like exhibition games while, while I'm getting ready for the G League. It's almost like the, the pre-G League. I think that, that's a big part. But, Kevin, you make a good point with Zion. You know, Zion Williams, I think, doesn't benefit going to the G League. He gets he benefits by going to Duke. Regardless of whether he gets a name, image, likeness deal, he's, he's getting paid regardless. I think it's the guys that are right below Zion in that tier. You know, maybe those 10, 15, you know, when you're going to that outside the top 10 in the NBA draft, I think those are the guys that benefit the most because they're, they're obviously very good college players. There's going to be a lot of focus on them in those cities that they're playing, you know, and not even this would, wouldn't be a great example, but in Cincinnati alone, since this is a Bearcat podcast, you know, Trey Scott would have been a guy who could have, who could have gone both ways, benefited from the G League, but also could have benefited clearly from some sort of image likeness arrangement. Same with, same with Jaron Cumberland. Two guys that who knows what their, what their professional prospects are, but they were able to capitalize, capitalize on that while they had it. Uh, so I think there's a lot, a lot that's going into it. And, and there's going to be choices that players are going to have to make one way or the other. Yeah. I, one thing I'm curious what your guys' thought is, is how much of this is just the NBA's, you know, inability up to this point to actually cultivate the G League into an attractive league? You know, what if instead of the, you know, I understand they have a fair amount of history, but instead of the Fort Wayne Mad Ants, what if it was a Cincinnati team and it had, actually a, a half decent following in a in a nice arena somewhere you know what if what if that league was just generally just just polished up a little bit in see either former nba markets or you know potential nba markets the nba can kind of use it to you know test the waters of expansion or relocation um do you think it just is missing a coat of paint from being appealing 
Um, I mean, tell me a G League team in Louisville wouldn't be amazing. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't seem like they've ever been that interested in seeing what the full potential of the league is. I don't understand why they wouldn't have a full developmental league unless you think about it like this, which is they have to actually invest real dollars in that league to cultivate it and to make it a more functional league. And with the college basketball setup, that's been free for them. Now, the biggest difference, that you, the biggest key to that and what you mentioned before, Kevin, is that the college rules are a lot different. It's a different shot clock. It's different three-point lines. It's different styles of coaching. I mean, it's very – there's several – not several. A lot of coaches in college basketball don't coach in any way, shape, or form close to what you see in the NBA. And it is an entirely different game. And so maybe they're realizing that <clears throat> we can get better development by getting these guys into our programs earlier. And this is just the test case for that. Let's see how the select program goes. But the other shoe to drop that hasn't been talked about enough, I think, is the NBA in the college basketball, the NBA is going to get rid of the one-and-done rule. They're going to allow 18-year-olds straight out of high school to enter the draft again. That's only a matter of time. And so Jalen Green, Zion Williamson, uh, these guys are going to go straight to the draft, and they're going to be drafted. And then the question becomes, years down the road, let's say five, ten years, are there players a caliber below them that could get drafted into the NBA where they even expand their draft to be more than two rounds and say, Hey, we're going to draft these guys who are actually not elite, you know, instant contributors in the NBA, but we can get them into our farm system. Does the NBA have interest in actually having a farm system? And I think we're really a long way away from that. And so I think once you, once the NCAA allows players to make money off themselves and at the college level, it really depends on what the financial deals are and how big they are, but it's going to be a tough sell for the G league. I think. Uh, I think that the purpose of the G league too is, is really to keep players from going overseas, to keep them in the U S to keep them developed for the NBA, to not lose top tier talent necessarily to, to these overseas contracts. But when you're talking about, will the, should the NBA take the G league and, and try to compete against the NCAA, you know, from a, from an eyeball perspective, I don't think that's the viable solution. I think that's, that's chasing, chasing waterfalls, you know, to be honest there. Yeah. Because at the same, like the, the passion and the fan base that's already built into the NCAA system is going to be hard to overcome. You're not going to just see millions and millions of, of, of college basketball fans stop watching because, and Cooper and I've talked about this a bunch, the product itself of college basketball, like the actual play of the game is not very good. You know, the college basketball itself is not the like. If you want to watch the best basketball in the world, you watch the NBA. That's not why you're watching college. So by losing some of these top tier players, I don't think you're going to see. You know, if you put a G League team in Louisville and say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna play, we're gonna bring in the, the best of the non NBA talent," I don't think they're actually going to compete well against Louisville in the Young Center. I think fans are still going to be going to watch Louisville over that G League team. So here's a question that I think will we'll get at the heart of something I've been I've been thinking about all this week, actually, which is, why do you think college isn't as good as the NBA? And is the only answer just the time and age it takes for a player to develop? Because no, imagine, imagine if Zion was signed a 10-year contract with Duke. Is he as good of a basketball player at the end of those 10 years as he will be in the NBA in whatever, eight years or nine years? Well, in the NCAA, I look at it like in NBA, we've got 30 teams and it's basically the, the cream of the crop in the game right. of basketball from overseas, from America, 
I mean, we have the best players in the world all in one place. College basketball is not the best players in the world. It's largely not the best players. It's guys who (laughs) will make a living, you know, in obscure leagues in, in Hungary or Turkey or, you know, Japan. Like there's, these are not the best players. And so there's a limit as to how far you can take this game. Now I would say part of it being part of the problem with college basketball is the best teams are largely made up of guys who are there for one year. So there's only so much chemistry they can actually have. There's only so much system knowledge they can have of, you know, going into that play, having chemistry with your teammates, performing at the absolute highest level. But those teams generally are just way more talented than, you know, your, your Bearcat teams or the butlers of the world. And, and for that reason, I think it does put a cap in terms of how good the game can actually be. But the NCAA, in my opinion, should just lean into that. They should just lean into it's a, it's a completely different product. You're coming here to support the brand of the university. Now, that's the, the interesting question to me is the G League, the Australian Basketball League, all of this is forcing the hand of the NCAA, which is to commercialize the players and, and really do the right thing, right, to allow players to make money off of their name. Obviously, this is the right decision, given how much money is actually in the game. I'm curious if the fan base of college basketball, how they're going to react to college basketball players becoming brands. You know, it's not going to be the level of a LeBron James or what you see in the NBA, but they are going to then, you know, be selling themselves essentially as, as someone to, you know, we're making money off our name, our likeness, what we're putting on the court. And it does just change the vibe of the product at large. Yeah. I, I mean, I know there's a certain degree of college fans like it because, you know, the, the players are there for the, you know, the amateurism of it, right? It's the love of the sport, allegedly, right? Like, that's what a lot of people say. Um, I think ultimately, you know, people are fans of these players and get attached to the personalities and will listen to the player interviews after the games and will have, you know, phone backgrounds with the player. I think people are prepared to be all in on that player. And if that player's, you know, in a a local commercial or, you know, having sponsored ads in their Twitter feed, I don't think it's going to cause too, too many problems um, from the fan side of things. At least that's not how I see it. But you mentioned something earlier that like just perfectly encapsulated sort of what I've been thinking about a lot this week. Um, which is we talk a lot about like, you know, the, the G League competing with the NCAA and the NBA competing with the NCAA. So what if we propose this? Let's flip it on its head and let's say the NCAA decides that it wants to compete with the NBA. It wants to compete with the G League and it decides to fully professionalize. Just says, fuck it. Play your pay, pay your players. You know, why not? Why, why can't Duke sign seven-year contracts with players? And they've got the fan base. They can get the media rights deals. Um, you know, half the NBA would trade places with the top 25 basketball programs in terms of fan engagement, fan support, fan merch buying. I mean, I'd imagine in a number of markets, the college is more popular than the NBA team. So what about it goes the other way? What if the NCAA just decides to say – have at it big schools. Well, I think we're just, there's no way that's happening because I look at the NCAA with this name image and likeness proposal they're putting forth. The fact that the NCAA is finally coming around to allowing players to make money on themselves 
to me, that's a sign that they know they they know how much worse it is for them if they don't allow them to profit through the third parties who are paying them. Right. right. This is this is basically the the midpoint of oh my, you know, we cannot pay them. We're not allowing the schools or athletic departments to pay them because as they've always said, they can't afford it. Um, I always personally find that to be a stretch. Now I'm certainly not smart enough to devise a scheme for them to pro- to successfully pay through universities and through their own programs. But to me, this is basically their, their last ditch effort to set like save amateurism. I don't think they have any interest at all in being professional. Now, if they did, it's a wild idea. I think you do have the professional, you have certain programs and I, I don't know if it's that many. I mean, we're talking Duke, North Carolina, right. Kansas, UCLA, Kentucky, right? Cincinnati, there's, Cincinnati, right? There's <laughs> there's a, a handful of programs that could really compete in, from an interest level and a financial perspective at a quote unquote prof- professional level, but that completely alters the game. And what I think it does, honestly, the way I hear college basketball fans talk about the sport, I think that there is in their minds a pureness to the sport with regard to like the players care more. There's less games. Every game matters. Uh, they leave it all on the court. It's not about I, it's about the team. I don't necessarily think all that's true. I think it's kind of this <laughs> fantasy that's built up in our head about college basketball over the years. Right. Because the fact is, I mean, we've seen plenty of cases where guys are already getting paid. I mean, these best oh, yeah. players are already getting paid off the books. This is just kind of putting it into, into our fate. It's kind of making it, you know, front and center. We're open. We're paying guys. Guys are getting money for this sport. But right. I just think... The NCAA has no interest at all, at all in going professional. And I think the fact that they are supporting NIL, that's an obvious that's, – yeah. that's your evidence right there. They don't want to pay players. Right. Fine. Let other people pay them off the court. Just let it happen. Save amateurism. It, it, it's been this way for a while. We, so we actually uh, can mark this time down so we can know to edit this part um, if we need to. When are we releasing this? Before or after um, Armin? We're releasing this first. We're releasing this first. So we have a Eric. Here we go. Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned that because we actually have a we we recently talked with someone um, that's going to be in a future episode who didn't. He said he you know he didn't he didn't collect anything, but he said people all almost most players are offered something. It's kind of how he put it. He said that players are getting offered, and it's really depending on your background whether or not kids are taking those offers and in the risk and reward that's associated with taking it. So by, by doing a name image likeness and the actual rule that they're proposing, it just moves this, moves a lot of this from the shadows and puts it out into broad daylight. Right. And it's kind of like the, the old thing, you know, if you make marijuana illegal, all of a sudden the drug war, the drug wars are worse than the actual legalized marijuana. Well, the problem of, of paying players under the table makes the problem worse being in the shadows because now you can't control it. You have no idea who's being offered what, who's, who's, who, how big is this bag versus the bag over here, where if they're you know, given an avenue to say, okay, it's okay if you do this. It's okay if you have an offer. It's okay that you're getting paid this much, this much amount. There's no cap on it. Just let us know what the deal is. That way we're aware of it. And now you can, you can, more, you can monitor the market better you have a better handle of the situation as opposed to saying, well, all right, this booster dropped the bag on this person's doorstep with $50,000 in it. Meanwhile, this one over here only got 15,000. You can't monitor it when it's, when it's in the shadows. Right. I just think it's, it's interesting to kind of play it all the way 
out. Like I'm very much a fan of like taking an argument or taking an idea, ramping it up to the extreme and just like seeing if it works. Right. Which is like, okay, so now the NCAA is going to allow this, but they don't want it to be, you know, everything has to be fair market value. So now all the boosters basically get to decide what the market is. Like they could all just decide, Hey, by the way, player appearances at restaurants, the going rate is a hundred K. Like, and now everybody in the country gets to operate at that. Like what's, what's fair market. But what, what I think is, is very interesting is like the idea of this is to protect amateurism. And I just keep coming back to why, why think about it. Every university has a bookstore on campus, right? That bookstore earns a profit for the university. They make money. They sell candy. They sell textbooks, obviously they sell pencils. And there are students of the university employed at the bookstore. Those students get paid by the university. University collects a little bit of the profit on the back end. Now, a lot of these universities, they don't make a lot of money. They're all legally, most of them, nonprofit institutions. So they raise money from boosters. And as long as boosters are okay with the direction of the university, they keep giving money. Just run the basketball program that way. Like, just, just keep, like, pay the players, pay the staff, keep it fully professional. If the basketball program makes money, great. University makes money, just like they are now. If it loses money, you go to the boosters and say, hey, guys, we're running a deficit. And if it's like UC, they go, yeah, here, there's a couple more bucks. Like, have at it. This is worth it to us as university alumni to keep competing at this level. And you keep going. Like, professional sports are generally run at a loss anyway. So just why, why the pretense of amateurism? What is that even accomplishing? Well, aren't we missing the fact that if, if let's say Duke was, they went full professional, like you're saying, yeah, their, their athletic department and their basketball team is generating money. That's propping up so many other things at their university, right? right. They're beholding the, to uh, title nine. They have that. So the, I feel like if, if they went full professional, aren't they still doing so with one arm, t- one arm tied behind their back? They so, don't have the ability to operate unencumbered like an actual professional organization would. Well, what you could do is the university would be, say, shareholders of a professional team that goes by Duke University, Blue Devils or whatever. And that professional organization donates any profit, should they happen to come into some, to the university. If they don't, they just run it at a loss. And they'll have a board of governors that's made up of all their top 25 boosters or whatever you want to call it. And they just pump money into the program. Yeah. Like, if, so they would have no chance. That's I'm already like I'm thinking this through because it's the same like what you're saying is is fine. Let's say Duke goes full professional. They're then operating within the same rules that every other NBA team is. So for them right. to get players, they're not just signing Zion Williamson. They're actually having to, yeah. to draft someone at that point. And then they're having to lure players in free agency. And small market teams, which are much bigger markets than Durham, North Carolina, already right. struggle to do that. And so when you if, if Duke goes full professional, and if a lot of these programs like Kansas, you know, these, these places, me and Hummer talked about this earlier on a different podcast, a lot of the best college programs sports-wise are in very, 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 very small actual markets that don't right. have much else going on. So I actually think they fall on their face if they try to go full professional because they're not going to actually, I, A, I highly doubt they have the financial resources, but then B, what's the actual appeal, appeal of, of a player going to Durham to play basketball? Yeah, we we pointed that out because of the football. We were I think we were talking about attendance because people were f- f- uh, getting getting a little a little hurt over Cincinnati not selling out a football game or by like two thousand people. 
and then like us having to like point out that Cincinnati is is a two pro sports town and at, at some times you have baseball sorry three sorry uh I did that the last time too three three it's pro okay. sports and but at, at anyone at, at certain points in the football season you may actually be competing against on the same weekend potentially on the same night baseball with the Reds football with the Bengals and soccer with FC Cincinnati so okay can you blame can you blame that but then when you go to all right ohio state columbus the next the closest pro football team is two hours away uh florida state same thing it's far away florida it's far away alabama middle of nowhere you know these big time college football programs there's nothing there yeah so how the going pro I, i just don't so this would be this would be my argument for it is basically people have bought into the brand like Buckeyes fans are Buckeyes fans. Buckeyes fans, they might also be Browns fans, but they're Buckeyes fans. So if they're into, you know, if they live in Columbus and they're a professional American football fan, just to be that guy, um, they're now Buckeyes fans, you know, and when they play the Wolverines, that is to most people in Michigan and Ohio is a more interesting matchup than Cleveland Browns versus the Detroit Lions. It's a bigger brand. It's a bigger alumni base than, you know, people who declare their allegiance to a professional football team. Most, you know, you have tens of thousands of people pledging tens of thousands of dollars every single year to these institutions. They have a rooting interest now. Like, okay, so attendance is a great example because I was looking at this. I was curious. Okay. Akron Zips, terrible football program, right? Not very good. Akron, not a very big city. The Mac, love Maction. It's not a lot going on, right? So last year, they averaged just shy of 19,000 people in the stands at every home game. If the Akron Zips football team were in La Liga, the Spanish soccer league, which for this argument, I'll say is the second best soccer league in the world, uh, they would be dead center of the league in terms of average attendance. You can't buy that level of fan enthusiasm on a professional level. Like it's just way too hard to do that unless you just plant a new sport, new team in a giant market. You already have 20,000 ticket buying people in Akron, Ohio for Mac. Okay. Do that with Ann Arbor, do that with Columbus, do that with Gainesville. There are hundreds of thousands of people that have already bought into these brands. They're fans of Florida and objectively it's already bad basketball. We've already talked about this Duke blue devils playing any NBA team. And let's say half the G league is going to get destroyed, but people tune in. Why? Because they're Duke fans. That's what I, that is the twist. You just make it fully professional. You unlock the handcuffs and you just say, have at it top. I, I mean, you could do it with the top 64 programs, right? Across football and basketball. And it's nice and even. All right. So Akron University <laughs> has an enrollment of 25,000 students. Uh, Akron There's, University. Yes. Sorry, I got I got University of Akron. The University, the University of Akron. Of Akron. Who 54 cares? people were in the stands against the game against Eastern Michigan. All right. I I'm just saying, are we, average is attendance. Or is it ticket? It's it's, it's tickets. It's even better. You got people buying tickets and not even showing up. That is a fan you want. Let's put it this way. Kevin, what makes Duke so special? Why do people know Duke? Coach K. Coach K and what Duke does at the bat with basketball. Right. right. They're known as dominating against other NCAA basketball teams. Right. The minute they go professional, they're not special anymore. They're not special. 
they're just another professional team attempting to compete with the biggest franchises in the National Basketball Association. But what's actually special about them anymore? They're no longer dominant. The brand is weakened. People outside of Durham, North Carolina, are much more unlikely to support this program because they actually don't have the same winning dominance that attracts people to them in the first place. Immediately, they lose all of that special factor. There's not nearly as much interest. And like I said, I, they're not going to have the financial resources uh, to actually compete at that level once, once things get going uh, yeah. with NBA draft, with attracting players. I just don't see – and then if you talk about 64 programs – Right now with Duke, we're talking about cream of the crop. How fast does that drop off after Duke? Pretty pretty quickly. But <laughs> I I look at it this way. Look at it this way. So right now, like the best games in college basketball is like Duke, Duke, North Carolina, right? Or it's you know Syracuse, Georgetown when those are allowed to happen. Um, it's UC Xavier. It's UC right? Xavier, like, right? Yeah, it's yeah, UC yeah. Xavier. Yeah, I mean, frankly, it is like a top five college basketball UC Louisville. It's UC Louisville. Right. These are objectively fun games, um, and they're big programs. And everybody tunes into college football when it is, you know, Auburn, Ohio State, or Clemson, USC, right? Like the big brands, the big alumni bases going against each other is what makes it fun. Nobody gives a shit about Virginia Wake Forest or in football. Um, nobody gives a shit about, you know, UC and USF. Like it's just, it's not, uh, I don't really care. But give me UC Louisville. Okay, that's something. Texas, Oklahoma. Now we've got something. This is fun. So if you imagine a league where you take your top brands, your USC versus North Carolina, Notre Dame versus Duke, your Alabama versus Syracuse. That is a league that you can sell to TV networks and say, I give you the biggest brands, the largest uh, alumni bases, every single match, no fillers. You get all of the best, the cream of the crop of the, the only teams that people want to watch. You have them right now. And they don't even need to compete with the NBA. They just created their own league. They can call right, it okay. whatever they want. So well, that's, the, I think that's but, a big clarification, though, is it's not meant to be any sort of consolidation with NBA. This is its own professional league. Yeah, uh, this is competing with the NBA this for is basketball yeah. fans. Gotcha. Okay. See, I feel I feel like you're going to run into the issue with trying to sell that to the TV execs because there is already a televised league with the following that it has being the NBA that if you were to try to in this perfect world where we're able to get um you know USC, UCLA, Alabama, uh Texas, Cincinnati, Florida you can, State. You can say it. I'm just saying you're able to get the, the biggest brands in college football all together to form a 32 a 32 team division two league and it's expands nationwide in this perfect world you're fighting for those dollars on the other side of other side of the fence right against the against right. that nfl and then on top of that now you're going pro and you're having to play these players and if you want to be able to draw the best competition because chances are that best competition is going to want the money but you're talking about teams that on average per the biggest i think the, the big 10 payout per school is like 35 million dollars per school which is a large lot a large sum of money but that's basically the operating budget that they're they're being tasked to run a professional organization on is $35 million. 
Are you going to be able to do better than that when you have these leagues like the ACC, like the Big 12, like the Big 10, that are already pretty much stacked with some pretty good college football teams and some pretty big brands in that league? Drawing to, are you really going to be able to squeeze an extra 50 million per school out there to be able to get them to compete at that highest level and draw in the the, the highest, big, best talent and make it a product that people actually want to watch? So, yeah. yeah, sorry. So, I think in basketball, this is much harder. Um, in football, it's much easier because right now the NBA doesn't necessarily rely on the NCAA. In fact, that's what started this conversation, right? Like they're trying to just cut them out. They don't need them. Hell, the NBA could be fine just recruiting from, you know, overseas for a season or two if they had to, just to, you know, freshen the ranks. But the NFL is reliant on college football. The NFL doesn't work without college football. So what if college football just turns the talent spigot off and says, "Eh, none of our guys can go to the draft. They all just signed five-year contracts. Their letters of intent are six-year contracts now. You don't get to go to the NBA anymore. You want that quarterback? You pay us a bunch of money for our quarterback. You know, we'll break his contract. You give us, you know, $12 million for Joe Burrow. You know, then we'll talk. You know, those are the types of things that I think in football could dramatically change it. I mean, hell, do, especially, you know, most people listening to this are going to be Cincinnati fans. Go just YouTube, like, any SEC school's, like, weight room, training room walkthrough, and then just go look at what the Bengals work out in. Like, half the SEC is more professional than the Cincinnati Bengals right now. So, like, if you're a professional football player and you're looking at Alabama's locker rooms and Cincinnati's, you might pick Alabama right now. Like, I think in football, football, there's a legitimate case. Um, And especially now that the fact that I'm not completely misunderstanding your idea. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Which I wish you guys had clarified before. Um, I'm not saying Duke goes to the NBA. I'm saying we make a new league that competes. Yeah. (laughs) No, that new league, I think in basketball, I don't understand. We can get back to it with, with football. Honestly, it's probably where we're heading, right? If, if, if I'm right and that the NIL proposal by the NCAA is their last ditch effort to hang on to amateurism because they don't want to pay people, if it goes any further than that and you actually have to pay players through the university and through the funds generated through their TV deals and stadium revenue, at that point, there's not, not as many programs can be afforded anymore. And there's many more universities that go back to being exactly what they were intended to be, which is institutions of higher learning but those programs that can still generate enough money to compete and compete at a really high level, that would be an extremely interesting wrinkle of the SEC, the biggest Big 12 schools, Cincinnati, biggest Big 10 schools, all of them mixed together uh, for the kind of this like huge professional league or maybe even a couple, I don't know exactly how they would do it logistically, but the setup is there. And the most interesting part of that is hiding talent from the NFL. What does the NFL do at that point? I think it'd be an interesting wrinkle to see how a school like Alabama actually fares in an environment where there is name, image, and likeness available because of them being in a much, 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 much smaller market than, say, a school like Ohio State, which isn't necessarily in the world's largest market, but it's in a much bigger market. And the fact that they, minus the 275 loop, control all of Ohio in terms of its fandom. You know, they have a basically a, a market reach of, say, 10 million people that they're going to be branding out to. That's going to generate a lot of dollars for their top tier recruits in an aim, a name image likeness deal. So I'm curious to see if it would actually if market forces would actually push the schools that are generating revenue to be the ones that are located in bigger markets. 
because the school like Rutgers being in New Jersey, being so close to New York city, all of a sudden, all right, you're top tier. You're, you're the number one ranked quarterback in the, in the country out of high school. Why not come to, why not come to New York? Why not get paid New York money as opposed to going to say central Florida, Orlando and just get teeny weensy Orlando money. Right. That's fascinating. You know, um, underrated beneficiary of this would be University of South Florida. Tampa Bay St. Pete is a sneaky top 10 media market in this country. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. I, Rutgers already sits on top of like some of the best uh, high school, like football prep academies in the country too. So the fact that they've always struggled, has been weird to me. Um, well, if yeah, you've ever been there, you'll know why. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, yeah. we go to, if we go to the basketball idea again, and I can actually address it for the idea that you actually presented <laughs> yes. though. So let's say Duke and all the biggest basketball programs, let's just say your most consistent NCAA tournament appearing teams create right. their professional league. The biggest problem they have is that it's still not the best level of basketball in the world. And so what is the incentive to actually stay and play a lower level of basketball when you're one of the greats? I guess you're asking, do people want, is there, is there a market then for fans to say, we just want worse basketball? Like we already do, right? We already want worse basketball just with universities um, to actually have a full fledged professional program. And it's 64 teams and we just, run the tournament every you know we'll, we'll see what the logistics are right but right that's it's it's interesting um i think that there's i think maybe my my personal opinion is that you're not fully appreciating the level of how how hard and how into and how passionate about uh the amateurism college yeah. basketball fans are i actually think there is true passion for amateurism or at least the air quotes amateurism I think that is a huge selling point for the average college basketball fan. It's, it, yeah. it's what makes the sport special. I, yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, so, so I'm a soccer guy, right? So allow me a slight detour as to why I think, I think these thoughts, right? Okay. So most of professional soccer, particularly you called in it, Europe, by the way, you, you called that, you called this, you're like, watch me bring it, watch me bring it back. I time. told you it's going to happen, <laughs> but it's going to make sense. And when you see it, you're like, I get it now. Okay. So in a lot of European countries and in particular Latin America, most of the professional soccer teams were actually started by schools. Um, they were started by either people who attended a particular school or active students at that university or, or even at that primary school. And it was the fandom and the fervor around the university that basically built a built-in fan base for the team that basically just couldn't leave. Like you weren't going to go root for a higher quality team because you can go to school there. So screw them. Like it'd be like in football or not football, like in high school sports, if like, you know, you went to Anderson, but you're like a big elder fan because they play better football. You'd be the weirdest person in the world. Right. Like, so that's sort of the foundation of, you know, where the soccer fandom comes from for most of the rest of the world. And, they had these exact same arguments uh, in the Netherlands, which is like hotbed of like brilliant soccer thinking and ideas and tactics. They didn't even go professional until the 1950s. They believed so much in the amateurism of sport and playing for, for the pure spirit of sport. And then they realized they were getting lapped by everybody else in the world you know, when it came to the actual sports side of it. So they started paying their players. So 
I just say this, and I know Hummer, you're a fact checker, so I think you'll appreciate this. Um, in Liga MX, uh, which is the Mexican soccer league, there is a team. They're one of the big four in Mexico. Uh, they are UNAM Pumas, and UNAM is the initials of a university. It is actually the largest university in Mexico. I believe they're like one of the largest universities in our entire Western hemisphere. Uh, but Pumas has been, I think, I think this is still correct, the most successful soccer team in Mexico since 2000. And they are owned by that university. It is also, you know, like I said, a massive university, but it's also a very prestigious university. Um, and they run and operate a fully professional team that wins championships in their professional league. So, and they're not alone. Uh, Ecuador's top division, I think, has two or three university teams in it. Chile has one of their biggest teams in the country is a university team. Um, in, uh, oh, what is it? Uh, Argentina, there's Newell's Old Boys. And Old Boys means graduates. It's like the graduate students. is one of the biggest teams in Argentina. That's the team that produced Messi, you know, best player of all time, in my opinion. So, um the blueprint is there in soccer. You have built-in fan bases with the alumni base. They're not going to go anywhere, and you just give them a, a reason to, to root for it. And rather than being – I mean, I know being a UC fan is terrible, and being a Kentucky fan in comparison would probably be more fun objectively, but they have a new lineup every single you're just year. Wrong. You're just wrong. You're just wrong. <laughs> I mean <laughs> – I mean, I would like to see a Final Four again in my life, right? And I feel like if you're a Kentucky fan, ah, yeah, it's like a better chance. I'll admit it, right? But, like, they have a new lineup of players every single year. What, what is the fun in that? Like, give me some guys that will stick around for a couple of years and have fun with it. That's way more interesting. I can get attached to a player. I mean, what is a name, image, and likeness deal in Lexington worth? Who cares about any of those players? They're gone next year. Well, see, Why would that, you buy that's another example anything? of probably that's probably another example of a team that that struggles with if there's a name image likeness brought to the table uh, but with, with it's funny that you mentioned the one and duns and teams like like Kentucky when when they're bringing in these one and duns it's like the data actually says in order to be successful with one and duns that you have to do it incredibly heavily like just having one one and done on your team doesn't typically get the job done yeah, but mo the, the one and duns actually are not the foolproof recipe for winning NCAA championships. It's actually the opposite. More teams win when they have the the stacked four year players actually actually playing in those team in those games. Right. Um, I think the one and duns it's something like less than ten percent of national championships have been won. There's only been a there's a hundred teams I believe since two thousand um, that have had uh, one and duns on their roster. So, I suspect if you broaden the the idea of success, though, to not be national championship, but like Final Four, Elite Eight, they do they make speed the at tournament a really high clip most in, in that respect. <laughs> which is which is fine, right. but I I also really do agree with what Kevin is saying there too. When it's it is not as fun to watch that. It's not as fun. It's kind of the reason why, you know, for as much as people love the Cyclones, why don't you watch the Cyclones all the time? Because it's a constantly rot rotating cast of characters. Right because they could be there for, for a month and they could, go, they could so, go away. So let's say the NBA gets rid of one and done. That's gone. So the, the elite prospects every year from high school are going to the NBA. Let's say they do build out the G League developmental pool so there are some players every year that are also going there. They're just a tier below the top-notch guys. 
college basketball is hurt from this respect. You no longer are ever going to have those situations where Patrick Ewing is playing Michael Jordan in a national championship game. You're never going to have the best players, the best basketball players in the world at their youngest stage playing each other and, and being at the highest level. You're just not going to see that anymore. But if you do also introduce NIL, all of a sudden you're allowing players to make some money and you're also getting a lower level of basketball player to come into your university, aren't you naturally going to start seeing guys stay three, four years more frequently? Because maybe their professional aspirations don't have as high of a ceiling and there isn't any room on a professional team. So, hey, why not continue to cash these checks at the university level, play for three to four years, and they do strengthen their brand in terms of having some more Cassius Winstons, Steve Logans, Dan Dickels. And look, they're not the biggest brand names. I would also throw like a Jimmer Fredette as, an, as a name in there too, where it's like not a high professional ceiling, but can be a really, really good college basketball player, very recognizable in their specific market. And you could certainly, they could certainly leverage that into making some actual real money at the college level. That's the interesting question for me is, can college basketball leverage these changes to be a little bit different? You're not going to have the peaks and the shining and the shooting stars of Zion Williamson anymore, but you are going to have a higher percentage of, of long-term players and building more recognition within your fan bases. You're yeah. still going to have, st you're still going to have Steph Curry's. You're still going to have these players who turn out to be great NBA players who play three, you know, th two, three, four years in college. You're still going to have that because uh, going to the G League doesn't just like – it doesn't necessarily, I think, translate to instant success. It doesn't translate to I'm going to the league instantly. I still think they have that problem of I'm playing against – I'm no longer the big fish in a, in a small pond. I'm a, I'm a, a medium-sized fish in, in, a medi in, a, in a big pond still. You know, you're playing against better players, so your draft stock can go down. You could struggle more. Where if you're a freshman, a uh, freshman who's, you know, I guess a perfect example is Zach Harvey. Zach Harvey struggled to keep up with the pace at the college level, but he was a highly touted recruit, the top 75 or whatever he, guy he was. If a guy like that goes to the G League, imagine that transition to struggle of going from the speed of the college game to going to the G League game. That's a guy, I think, who would struggle mightily by going that route and is going to benefit more by going the college route. But a G League team wouldn't even sign Zach Harvey, right? Like a G League team, the, the Zach Harvey who came into the UC program last year, he's not going to be pursued by a G League team at this point. So Maybe then how many guys are we really fans. losing? Like if, if, how many guys are we really losing to the G League then a year? Well, 10, 20? Okay. If we, if we look big picture like, like Kevin's talking about, if it becomes an actual farm system in that world, Maybe and maybe it's it's a developmental program where we're just kind of bringing in anybody who has a remote, uh, any remote talent. We're going to bring you in and try and develop you. In that world, it happens. The NBA has been really slow with this G League thing. We're just seeing them get aggressive for the first time this year. It's not going to be. I don't see a short term plan for them to really just grow the G League. In fact, it's probably going to shrink in the short term because of the COVID nineteen situation. And because right. of the lost revenue, they're probably going to take steps back in terms of really expanding this. Um, you know, I think the entire G League season is, is essentially being canceled. Uh, it's being altered in, in a dramatic way uh, outside right. of this developmental program. So I, I think that the NCAA, I guess, to put a bow on it with that in terms of what I was just talking about, NCAA is alive and well, but they are being forced to start paying players. They're, they're being forced to figure out a way for compensation to happen. I think they're desperate for it to happen through this image and likeness deal. 
they're desperate for it not to come through them directly because I think in that case, you're right, Kevin, they do have to think about more of a professional model, but that debilitates universities across the country and they essentially become intramural programs again. Yeah. Capitalism. Yeah. I do think what would be very interesting is, you know, if the NBA really wanted to accelerate, say, the death of the NCAA, which it might actually have a, a stake in um, in the next 10 years, would be just the popularity of basketball around the world. Like, you talk about all these, like, mid-tier guys. Like, if there's fully paid professional leagues all over Europe and South America and Asia, like at a certain point, if you're moderately good at basketball, like if you're not getting paid for it, you're kind of a sucker. So like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, the more popular basketball becomes, it just becomes harder to justify an amateur existence. Um, you know, just to, to broaden it just a touch would be the, the, I think the uh, NIL deals, We'll probably see the most benefit with non, um, say, non-lucrative sports. Your lacrosse players, your golfers, your soccer players. Um, you know, the the best lacrosse player in college. I don't know him. You guys probably don't know him, but I bet every lacrosse high school player knows him. And if that kid's doing merch deals with various stick providers and and whatever else, like that kid's going to see a benefit that has never been fully realized you know, across the various, you know, attempts at a professional lacrosse team or professional lacrosse league. So um, I think that's where you see the major benefit is, is in the, these smaller non-revenue sports. Non-revenue was the phrase I was looking for. Damn it. Well, we've been (laughs) focusing on basketball too, but really you got to think in football where you're locked into playing for a university for three years, that has to play a role too, right? Biggest names. And I would say not even the biggest names, college football players would be in great, position at this point for NIL deals, uh, given the fact that they are going to have recognition, they're going to be on campus for at least three years. I mean, that's going to play a huge factor, right? Evan Pratter is probably coming to Cincinnati with a deal this year, even though he's not going to start next year. Yeah. And we're, we're also just talking about this as if people aren't getting paid right now and they are right. right. They are being paid. <laughs> and then one, one of the biggest selling Jack points for college, college. <laughs> one of the biggest selling points for college basketball is that it's fun. You know, I know that these, I know that they, they haven't been compensated the way they, they should have been historically, but there's a reason that you like being a college basketball player or football player on that stage. You are the shit on campus. Everybody knows who you are. You still are just going to classes, going to parties and practicing your sport. You're, you're not more famous than what you're going to be in the G league. You're not, you're, you're practicing like, like an, like an amateur athlete, really. Right. It's not professional training. There's not professional stakes, but you're, you're living I mean, you're living the life like a professional. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I like, I just, these small market, these small market NBA teams just strike me as in terms of like my ability to be famous, just like strikes me as not as big of a deal as some of the, the most famous kids on the most famous, you know, college basketball programs. I think that's where it really starts to shine. Now, can they, can they keep up with that? Can they compete with that? I, I don't know. I'm not sure how long, but like the most famous Duke player is going to be way more interesting than the most famous Nashville player, right? Or Memphis or wherever the NBA team is. I genuinely couldn't tell you. One of the Tennessee South. Is the Memphis no. here's, University here's, basketball team more popular than the NBA team? Here's what I don't think you're accounting for. And this was a huge deal with the NBA this past season, which is how their international appeal. 
I mean, they bent over backwards to, to not offend China and to make sure that that relationship stayed intact. And that's because if you're playing for Memphis, you can still be hugely popular abroad. Tracy McGrady right. has a cult following in China. And that doesn't yeah, even right. account for all the other international com- you know, countries, Australia, Germany, England, all these countries have massive fo- NBA followings. And you're not, having, you're not getting that fandom at the college level. You saw the king, LeBron James, bend down on one knee to kiss the ring of China. <laughs> you did. That's very true. That's very true. I did, I did forget the, the sort of international reach of the NBA. That yeah. will always be there. Is that an argument then for expanding the NBA? More markets, more stars, and more countries? Even no, if it's I, I'm, ab- I'm absolutely against the NBA expanding any further. My perfect NBA would be contracted contract. by right. at least you know 10 teams. Take it down to 20 teams. I know that the talent technically exists, but it's it's spread too thin when you consider how impactful a player like LeBron, Kawhi, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, you have those guys, you have one of those guys on your team, you're instantly in the conversation to win a championship. But then if you get two of them, I mean, you're, you're a heavy favorite. So, right, the Clippers, right. the Lakers, the Bucks, like all these teams are already heavy favorites to win a championship just by having two players. Right. So if you shrunk the league and you made – you made the the next tier of player like the Gordon Haywards. Uh, he's a terrible example, but like a team full of like Jason Tate, Jason Tatum, Jason Tatum. Um, I'm trying to think of like the the next tier down, but guys like that, Damian Lillard, Jason Tatum. All of a sudden, a lower level. If we're if you had us by ourselves, we're not going to be a championship contender. But if you have more of those guys on one team, they can compete with the LeBron James of the world, Kevin Durant. Kawhi Leonard. And I think it actually makes it a much more interesting and competitive league, more wide open, a little more comparable to the NFL, probably where teams could recover and bounce back after being terrible one year yeah. over, but relegation is, in the NBA is the, NBA oh, gonna, give it to me. Is the NBA going <laughs> to uh, contract by 10 teams? No, they're not going to do that. But that's my, that's my dream. Definitely not expansion. No, maybe you don't. Okay. So what if you don't do, uh, what if you combine the ideas? You expand and then you do promotion and relegation, right? Oh, that'd be beautiful. So like all of your top yeah. talent is still going to be concentrated, but you have more markets, more NBA teams. I oh, knew it was building to this point where, where we had to Cle- Cleveland wins the Cleveland wins the championship with LeBron. Two years later, they're in D2. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what happened to the relevance, right? So, like, <laughs> so let's say, but let's like take the English Premier League, which is the one soccer league I'm most familiar with, even more Perfect. so than MLS. As an example, there's what, 19 teams in that league? There are 20. 20 teams. All right, 20 teams in the Premier League. And even in that league, how many teams are actually competing for the title year in, year out? Genuinely seven at most. Seven. And that's being, that's being real nice. If the NBA came down to 20 teams, I actually think you could argue there would be more than seven teams competing for championships at that point. Yeah. And let's say we expanded and added another 10 teams to get to 40. So you have 20 and 20. That would be a perfect NBA at that point. I think the NBA would be one of the best professional sports products in the world. It already is really high up there, but the competitive balance is lacking. We have teams yep. like you know that can just full on tank and just not win for year on years on end, and it's really hard to ever get back in the conversation unless you have the most elite player. If you if you shrink it to twenty teams and have the expansion or have the uh, promotion and relegation, I think it becomes more interesting at that point, at least. 
I think it'd be way more fun. Plus, you already have uh, Adam Silver talking about doing a sort of cup competition where you have basically a single elimination tournament that sort of runs in conjunction with your regular season. I mean, that is an idea stolen straight from soccer. So we we know they're already looking in this direction uh, for some ideas. So I find that interesting. What's the you only know, thing holding them back from doing it? At this point, it's it's the, the current investment, the money, not yeah. wanting to be relegated to a different league. Right. You know, it's funny. Um, again, talk, talk about, you know, promoting the brand here. Uh, at the post-Cincy, um, I posted a sort of uh, hypothetical league structure of combining Major League Soccer and Mexico Soccer League together. Um, this is something that both commissioners of both leagues in both countries have said they want to do. So it's not absolutely crazy. Um, but my idea there was basically you have one division you, you basically take 16 teams to the playoffs and in one division, the top 10 teams make it to the playoffs. And in the other one, the top six make it to the playoffs. And then you do promotion and relegation between the leagues, but being in the sort of second league doesn't actually knock you out of championship contention. It just makes your playoff chances harder was the idea. So maybe an idea like that to the NBA would be a little interesting. Yeah, well, we gotta we gotta plug that online after this <laughs> to make sure people are reading that. I think it's fascinating, honestly. If you get that, into that, that is actually interesting. If you get into promotion and relegation at all, and you know even the straightforward version that the Premier League currently yeah. has, it's hard to find the downside. It's hard to find uh, it, right? You know, it's beautiful. Can, it, what makes it so good is that it is finally punishment for being a bad team. LOL Cleveland Browns is just no longer a joke. It's the financial future of that team. <laughs> like there are actual stakes for being bad. Um, what I find super interesting is, uh, you know, before this conversation, I was just glancing at, you know, how are European basketball leagues structured? I was kind of curious about that. Turns out to a T, all of them have between five and nine tiers of basketball leagues that they do promotion and relegation within. That's insane. You imagine a nine-tier system in the U.S.? <laughs> it would be incredible. And again, because these promotion and relegation systems existed when these clubs were amateur, the NCAA could do this. So you have, what, 120, 130 teams in football and, like, let's call it 330 teams in basketball in Division One or FBS. I think it's 352 teams in basketball. Damn. NCAA. They let anybody in, huh? Uh, yeah, so. they do. And we we, lost, we almost lost, I think we lost one in the three hundreds. <laughs> yeah, in terms, are I, you uh, college basketball teams. Yeah, I miss it. Yeah, three hundred fifty-three teams, I think. Okay, yeah, yeah. But imagine a system just blow up the conferences for a second and just divide everybody into like groups of 16 or whatever you want to make it right groups of 20 groups of 12 however many games you want to play and then just do the entire college system is promotion and relegation between that and then the NCAA tournament is a knockout tournament with fucking everyone like it's a giant whatever bracket that ends up being right so you have your league system everybody gets promoted and relegated and at February the end of madness. the season there's your there's your seating. That's it. You win the top division, great. You're the number one seed overall, and you'll play number three hundred and fifty-three. Uh, or you know, obviously, probably a playing game with the uneven numbers, whatever. But like, that's how you build out your structure. Way more interesting. Then Duke can prove that Duke is Duke by beating Michigan State 
and UCLA and Cincinnati every single year. And if they don't, if they struggle, if you have a Miami University in football that just keeps slipping and slipping and slipping, enjoy Western Michigan away, assholes. Like, you're, you're done. Like, go back to the 80s. <laughs> it is amazing that, I mean, it, I feel like that's the best way to run a sport. Like, it would just make it eons more entertaining. It's compatible with the tournament. And it actually punishes losing, which how many rounds would you need to get through to 353 teams? So <laughs> is, I, is this tournament I mean, starting in January? <laughs> it's actually just double all you're doing. Yeah it, it, yeah. it gets bigger. Like think about it. 64 to 128, 128 to 256. You'll get there so quickly. It's only adding two or three rounds. Yeah. Three more games. And you yeah, already that's do incredible. Let's you do it. Do a play in <laughs> game. Right. So you're really only adding two for anybody who'd be an 11 seed. So like, like fuck it. <laughs> Let's just make sure we're in the first uh, top tier when we <laughs> right. when we start this. Let's let's be in the top tier first. But Actually, it, you know what? Put me in a second tier first because let, let, right. we're going to grow. We, we, with the team we have structured, I think the second tier, that top 32 would be good for us. But, Again, it doesn't I mean, actually matter what tier. You perform well in your tier, and then you're going to get a shot at the end of the season to win in the tournament. And you have a real argument for keeping – okay, say, say the NCAA continues on amateurism, right? Like, let's say that does that – but now you have they an are, argument they are for going to continue in amateur right right right, right. For, but let's yeah but let's assume like now luke fickle has a reason to stay hell brian kelly has a reason to stay because he can build it into a top division team that's consistently competing for championships and winning and the second they don't they get fired and that's great but now luke fickle isn't just waiting for ohio state's job opening he can now actually build a program in his image and if you're a uc fan you have an exact path on how to win a national title this is how you do it because right now you win the aac and you just what you hope that it's a down year on the top 10 programs in the other like it's so just bizarre there's no automatic qualification it opens it up to your middle tennessee state universities yeah well, they we went don't even national need, time <laughs> we won't even need anything that dramatic to make luke fickle want to stay at cincinnati and that's playoff expansion to eight and then getting a right. guaranteed spot for a g5 program right that happens and all of a sudden there is incentive to come to cincinnati because we can compete in the playoff right um it is right, that we more than likely will compete because it's, I think your path of least resistance is winning the AAC as opposed to winning the big 12 or one of those other bigger conferences or just being the best team out of that group of five is easier than being, you know, Ohio state and competing against Ohio state every single year, year in and year out. It will right. be harder for a Michigan state to get into the playoffs than it would be for a Cincinnati where historically I know this isn't going off a long period of time or a wide ranging set of data, but you know, going back to say 2007 to present day, Cincinnati has been a relatively top of the top of the crop power five, non power five performing team. And I think that puts Cincinnati in a really great position to be competing year in and year out against teams like who Memphis, Boise state. Great. Boise right. state has also been on a, a little bit of a down, a downswing kind of your, your Miami university you know, ever since the, the blue field became popular, Boise State's kind of been dropping off. But Cincinnati, outside of one coaches uh, who shall not be named, uh, you know, we – I'm going to name him, but Tommy Tuberville, Cincinnati's been right there in, as the cream of the crop for that league. It's easy for us to – I think this is a path of least resistance to get to the playoffs. Uh, that's soon to be Senator Tuberville to you, sir. <laughs> oh, dear God. 
Jesus. It's a non-zero percent chance I mean, that happens. Can you imagine, even if we got into the Big 12, Big 12, we're playing against Texas. We're playing against West Virginia. We're playing against Oklahoma every year. Those are the three. Te- those are the teams that we have to potentially run through to get to a playoff spot, where right now we literally have to run through UCF and Memphis. That seems like a way easier yeah. drink to, to, to chug than it is to, to take down those big boys. Let me I ask you this, Kevin, because yeah. I know you historically you've got more perspective on what's happened in professional sports over the years. Has there ever been precedent in America for a promotion and relegation model? Has not, there ever been that model in the United States? Not that I am aware of, at least in fully professional sports. Um, it has existed in various forms in amateur ranks uh, at different points. Um Right now, uh, the second division of soccer uh, is the USL. That's the league that FC Cincinnati was in prior to moving to MLS. USL um, sort of rebranded their division as the USL Championship and have since launched USL League One, which is underneath that, and USL League Two, which is even underneath that. And their league president um, keeps flirting with the idea of introducing promotion and relegation to um, the USL divisions, basically. So like right now in the top division, they have a Tampa Bay team, a a San Antonio team. Louisville is one of the big teams there. In their second division, they have teams like Greenville, Omaha. Um, They're rumored to be getting a Fort Myers, Florida team, a Lexington team. So um, they're sort of building themselves out a pyramid right now. Um, the question is, would USL ever want to have a Division One that would compete with MLS? Um, it seems unlikely right now, but they haven't ruled it out. And they have the media markets to make an argument for creating a, a proper Division One. So, um, but in terms of like historical precedents, not really. The closest you're going to get is basically the Netherlands in the 1950s. Um, they introduced promotion and relegation really late into the game. In soccer, they built promotion and relegation into the very first leagues they ever did in the 1880s. That was just like, this is the best way to run a league. Like, like you said, like we're going to do this. And everybody's like, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you what, boys. That was a good conversation. <laughs> this is amazing <laughs> so much opportunity kevin we appreciate it man thanks for joining us today oh have fun editing this <laughs>